The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, it's good to be together this fourth Sunday of Advent. And would you join me as we pray and as we look at God's Word? Father, we ask once again that you would cause your word to go forth and not return void, but so that we would see and behold the majesty and the glory of Jesus afresh this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had someone overpromise and underdeliver? This typically happens in maybe business settings, but it could be anything. Someone says, you got to get this new phone. It will change your life. Or you got to try this restaurant. You'll never be the same afterwards. Or you got to buy these joggers. You'll never want to change out of them. Or you got to try this jello salad. It will really <laughs> change your life. Download this app, read this book, whatever it may be. This movie is the greatest artistic endeavor that I've ever seen. And you'll just not be the same after you watch it. Overpromise and underdeliver. So you can't get, you can't help but kind of get pulled along by the enthusiasm and the excitement of your friend, whatever it is that they're telling you about. And so then you try it, whatever it is, and then you realize that's it. You kind of overpromise, underdeliver, uh, underwhelmed, if you will. You're disappointed. And, and if they had just kind of undersold it, you might have been like, okay, that's not bad. But the fact that they overpromised and they said, oh, it's the greatest thing in the world, that it sort of undermines your very experience of it. Overpromised and underdelivered. Have you ever had an experience like that? Well, I wonder if Christmas sometimes feels that way for us. That people overpromise the joy and the peace and the excitement that you can experience at Christmas time and you feel like. It under-delivers. Here, here are the words from Luke 2.10. You know this. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That are some, those are some big promises. Great joy. Good news for all the people. And, and the question for us this morning is, does Jesus' birth truly, indeed, bring and usher in unspeakably good news? Are we putting too high of expectations on the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago to transform our lives? I wonder if some of us who walked in this morning think, I, I, I love Christmas, but sometimes it just makes me feel sad and depressed. I don't feel the, the joy and the peace like I think I should or want to. And this question attempts to make sense of sort of the tension that we feel at work in our lives at all times, that we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing, that we live in a world that is pretty good and yet we suffer horrific and horrendous things at times. We're loved by the God of the universe, but we live in a divided world. We have glorious salvation in Jesus, and yet I still have to pay the bills on Monday. So some of us are personally wondering, if the birth of Jesus is good news of great joy, then what am I doing wrong? Well, did I miss the boat? 
If we're all supposed to experience peace and joy, why do I feel like I'm on the outside looking in? Does Christmas, does Advent, does the birth of Jesus overpromise and underdeliver for us this morning? Well, as we come to our fourth installment of our Advent series through the book of Isaiah, our passage this morning in Isaiah 61 tells us why we feel this tension. It helps us understand this. And the main point of our passage is that the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, does not overpromise and underdeliver, but rather it tells us that we're living in the age of the already and not yet. And the incarnation will, in fact, actually exceed all of our expectations someday. So the birth of Jesus is where the kingdom of God has begun. And hope has come into a broken world. And so my aim in this sermon this morning is to help us make sense of this tension that we feel. Great joy, good news for all the people. And then I look at my life and I look at our world and it's broken and fractured. And I feel all the tension and all the stressors around me. And I think, what gives? How do we make sense of these realities? And so I want us to understand this better so that we might take heart and have hope this morning. We need to learn what it means to live by faith when it's the kingdom of God is already, it's entered in, it's begun, it's been inaugurated by Christ, and yet it's not yet. It's not fully consummated. And so we're living in this in-between time. So look with me at Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 3. So we already looked at the Davidic king in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. We've looked at the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. And now we come to the spirit-anointed messenger in Isaiah 61. And what I want to do is look at how we should understand Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. And then I want to turn to Luke chapter 4, where Jesus quotes this passage and helps us interpret it. And then I want to apply this for us. So here we come to Isaiah's prophecy. And he opens by telling us, Isaiah opens by saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon this messenger. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This word anointing means that this is probably a prophet or a priest of some sort that is going to come and speak for God. And then he gives us seven infinitives to highlight the purpose or the mission of this messenger. So the first is to bring or to preach good news to the poor. So the poor here are not just the materially poor, but actually those who are spiritually poor, the downtrodden, the disadvantaged, the afflicted, much like Jesus in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So good news is coming, and it's not just going to be for the powerful, but even, or the rich, but for the poor. Now second, he's going to bind up the brokenhearted. So this spirit-anointed messenger that is coming is going to bring healing and restoration, all the sadness of the world is going to be mended, binded up. Number three, he's going to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The word liberty here, or freedom, calls to mind Leviticus 25, where it's describing the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, you're to release all the slaves, cancel all the debts, don't plant any crops. This is a year of Jubilee where everything will be set free. 
And he's saying here that this messenger that is coming is going to bring freedom from bondage. So here we get good news after good news after good news. The second half of that, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, could also be read, if you look at your footnote in your ESV Bible, the opening of eyes to those who are blind. So there's this picture of sight, of freedom from bondage. Number four, he's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. Notice two things here. How long is God's favor here? It's a year. And how long is his vengeance? A day. He's intentionally drawing this contrast out. This anointed messenger is going to come and proclaim this message of salvation and judgment, grace and justice. And notice, this is the third time the phrase proclaim or preach is being mentioned. This primary task of pronouncing good news. And then number five, this messenger is going to comfort all who mourn. So, all that is sad and rotten in our world will be undone. This prophecy is looking forward to end time joy when mourning and tears are no more. And some of us are here this morning and we're saying, oh, I can't wait for that day. I'm looking forward to that day. And yet, it's not here yet. I still feel mourning and grief and tears. And so, when is this going to happen? And then number six and number seven come together here at the end there in verse three. He's going to grant to those who mourn in Zion. That's the sixth. And then the seventh is these three images. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So not only is this messenger coming to bring good news, but he's bringing transformation and renewal. And we get these three images. Instead of sackcloth and ashes, like mourning, like going to a funeral, instead of being dressed in all black, you're going to put on your Hawaiian shirt and and time of celebration and a lay around your neck. It's the picture here. We don't really have headdresses, but it's this picture of celebration, almost like that of a wedding, a crown of beauty instead of mourning. Gladness and anointing, like oil being poured out instead of mourning. And a faint spirit, instead of that, wrapped in a garment of praise. So what's the whole point of this prophecy about this coming messenger? It's that he's coming and he's going to bring renewal and restoration. All that is broken is going to be made wonderful. And all of this results, if you look at the end of verse 3, with the people of God being called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Previously in Isaiah, whenever trees were mentioned, it was in relationship to idolatry. And now the people of God are going to be established as strong with deep roots so that they will be oaks of righteousness all to the glory of God. So the summary of Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, is that God is sending an anointed messenger that is going to bring good news that will turn all that is wrong to become right once again. It's going to result in joy and praise. This is really good news. A spirit-anointed messenger is coming to herald that God's kingdom is breaking in. And for the original listeners of Isaiah, 
And all those who would read Isaiah until the time Jesus comes, they're to read this and say, oh, I can't wait for that day. I'm looking forward to that day. I want to live in that day. In exile, they're saying, oh, I can't wait. And the purpose of this prophecy is to help them not only identify the Messiah when he comes, but it's to help them to trust him in this in-between time from when this prophecy was made to when it gets fulfilled. Israel is to hear this message and take heart and have hope. But also for Isaiah's audience, there's all this ambiguity. Like, who is this messenger going to be? Is it the same as the suffering servant and the Davidic king, or are these three different people? And how is it going to be that he's going to say all this good news, but like, other than what, him, what he's saying, how does it actually come to pass? Like, how does it become a reality that mourning goes away and all those who mourn will be comforted? Because he's telling us this good news, but how is it going to come to pass? So there's all this ambiguity, lots of questions. And so what I want to do is now turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 4. Because Jesus helps us understand this passage. So Isaiah's prophecy compels us to look to the New Testament to better understand it. So Luke chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 17 to 21. If you are familiar with Luke, Luke begins with this account of Jesus' ministry, citing this text from Isaiah. So it would have been the custom for Jesus and every good Jew to go to the synagogue each week. And here he is in Nazareth. He's the hometown boy. He goes to the synagogue. They would have recognized him. Oh, here's Jesus. And it's probably the the priest there says to him beforehand, hey, Jesus, you want to bring a word and, and read the scripture this morning? And he says, sure. And so let's pick it up in verse 17. This is Luke 4, verse 17. It says, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So would have had all of the book of Isaiah or maybe sections of it in different scrolls. And and he went to his place where he wants to read from that morning. Jesus is picking his text. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You could hear a pin drop in that moment. And question marks and awe and confusion in the eyes of the people. What does he mean by that? Now, I want us to notice a number of things about this passage. Look where it comes. In Luke chapter 4, if you look earlier in verse 14 of Luke 4, you can begin to see that Jesus begins his ministry. But what happens prior to that? He gets tempted by Satan at the end of, or at the beginning of chapter 4. And then before that, there's the genealogy of Jesus at the end of chapter 3. But what happens right before that? It's, we get told about John the Baptist, and at the end of the account of John the Baptist, Jesus gets baptized. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 20, 21, and 22. 
Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So here we get Jesus as this spirit-anointed, spirit-empowered individual. And then Jesus picks his text in Isaiah 61. Luke is trying to tell us something here, that it's a sign. Here we have the spirit-anointed messenger beginning his ministry, reading from Isaiah 61, who says, Today in your hearing, this is being fulfilled. It's like, how many of you remember Krispy Kreme? We used to have it here in Minnesota. You can't get it anymore. But whenever they were making the donuts, these delicious sugary donuts that would melt in your mouth, they would have a sign out front that would be read in a circle. And what would it say? Some of you know this. It says hot now. And if you went and bought a dozen, you would get a free donut because it was hot and fresh. It had just rolled off this sugary, delicious conveyor belt so that you could get one fresh and so that you would come back for more. And they would have this sign that would just go on whenever they were making new donuts. And that's what Luke is doing for us right now. He's putting out a red sign, not to say hot now, but here now. The Messiah is here. Don't miss it. Spirit anointed. The Holy Spirit that looked like a dove in that moment lands on Jesus. On no one else does the Holy Spirit land on like that. And here he is reading Isaiah 61. And look at what he says today in your hearing. This is being fulfilled. He's blinking a sign for us that we wouldn't miss it. Here now. The messenger is here. Don't miss what's taking place. All the good news, all the exciting things, all the mourners that get comforted. The messenger is here. He's proclaiming that news. And it becomes even more stunning when we realize that Jesus is not just the messenger, but he's the Davidic king. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel, and he is the suffering servant, the one who would lay down his life for his people. He would be our substitute. So Jesus comes into a world, and what he begins is this unstoppable and unrelenting fountain of hope. It's like a dam that breaks open and the water has nowhere to go but forward. That's what we're supposed to see here in Luke 4, calling to mind Isaiah 61 and realizing five, six, seven hundred years prior, this prophecy was made and now it's been fulfilled in Jesus. Now, I want to clarify a few things about this passage. Some take these verses when Jesus says he's come to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, that this is all about social transformation, that Jesus did not come to preach the gospel, but rather to, to kind of remove all the ills of our society. Some might even go further and say we should put less emphasis on evangelism and instead be the hands and feet of Jesus. So let's do good deeds, open soup kitchens and acts of kindness and homeless ministry and social programs. Did Jesus come 
to bring social change. I think we need to understand this lest we miss and misunderstand what Jesus is doing. I want us to turn forward to Isaiah or to Luke 4, verse 43, because we'll see his priority there. Luke tells us in 4, chapter 4, verse 40, that Jesus was healing people. He was healing all over the place, all those who came to him. In verse 40, it says, When the sun was setting, and all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And finally, he, he begins to withdraw to a desolate place, but there's more people waiting for Jesus to heal. And what does it say that Jesus does? In verse 43, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Jesus' preaching ministry was his primary ministry. Yes, he healed. Yes, he cast out demons. But those were to authenticate that a bigger reality had come. That Jesus was bringing the very kingdom of God down to earth. And he was going to transform people, not just physically, Because if he healed all those people who were blind, all those who were lame, all those who were poor, all those who were prisoners, and yet left them in their sins, they would still perish. So Jesus was bringing about a greater, a deeper transformation and change, spiritual change. That even if you remained blind physically, because Jesus didn't heal every blind person, even if you remained blind physically, spiritually, you could now see and that you might behold the savior of the world. Jesus came to address the deeper underlying issue of our sin and of our guilt and of our shame and the punishment that we deserve as those who dishonor God. So we don't want to just understand Isaiah 61 or even Luke 4 through the narrow lens of physical poverty and captivity but it encompasses a greater spiritual condition apart from Christ. Now, this doesn't mean we shouldn't care about the poor. We we do, and we have ministries here at our church that address those very issues. But Luke is shining the here now sign to tell us something even bigger, that the king, the servant, the spirit-anointed messenger has come, and he's begun to bring transformation to this entire world spiritually. Jesus is doing more than just changing circumstances, but he's bringing spiritual transformation and renewal so that we would recognize that we're living in this already world, that the kingdom's already broken in. We can already find life and hope and peace spiritually, internally. And yes, the physical is going to follow. At times he will heal and at times he may not. But when we meet him in heaven, All of our tears will be wiped away. Now, I want us to notice another thing. In Luke 4, when Jesus reads, do you see where he stops? Verse 19 of Luke 4. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops right mid-sentence. He does not say, and the day of the vengeance of our God. Why does he stop mid-sentence? I think it's this. He leaves out this note of vengeance, suggesting that his primary mission right now in his coming is this age of grace, this year of favor. Jesus has begun to usher in God's promises in fulfillment of what 
was prophesied in Isaiah. In God's manifold wisdom, he ushers in an age of favor before judgment. It's like if you see massive mountains in the horizon. So you get two mountains, and they feel like one's right on top of the other, you know, if you're looking this way, right? But then when you get closer, or you come to it at the side, then you realize there's all this space, all all these miles between the first peak and the second. And that's a little bit what, like, Isaiah's and Luke are highlighting for us. He speaks of salvation and judgment in the same breath. But then when you finally see it, you realize salvation comes first. This is the age of favor and of grace. And yes, judgment is coming. Yes, all that is wrong will be punished. But that's into the future. And Jesus himself confirms this when he says in John three seventeen, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what does that tell us this morning? It tells us that right now, the fact that we see brokenness all around us, we see tornadoes, we have cancer diagnoses, we have issues that people can't figure out and we've got to go down to Mayo, we have estranged family, we have shootings, far too many, we have violence, and then we have all the geopolitical stuff and all the other things going on in our world, and all of that is not because God is powerless right now. And that he hasn't brought his transformation and renewal. But all of that is still present in this age of grace because of God's patience. Because he's not brought his vengeance and his wrath yet to be poured out. And all of that brokenness is like a sign. The fact that you feel sadness or depression or anxiety, mental health issues, broken family, friends that are estranged, our world that is so broken. Whenever you read the news, there's more bad news. It's a sign to say, trust in Jesus. It's going to be made new. The Messiah has arrived. This is the time of salvation. And someday Isaiah's prophecies will finally come true all the way. So how then are we to understand and apply Isaiah 61? I want to draw out three applications for us this morning. The first is that today is the day of salvation. We live right now in an age of grace where God is so stunningly and amazingly patient. He's patient. People conclude, you know, I'll use God's name in vain. I didn't get hit by lightning. He's absent. He's not real. People conclude, because God doesn't punish them, that somehow he's powerless and weak and does not exist. And it couldn't be further from the truth. The reality is that you're living right now in this age of grace and of favor. And oh, Yes, we live in a broken world. We live in the already and not yet where light is shining and good news has come and yet we're still grappling with all the brokenness of our world and it's to point us to a greater reality that it will someday be all made new. But right now, in the time in which we live, God is being really, really patient and we ought to pray for people to come to saving faith in Jesus. This is why we're here Surrender and trust in Jesus today, for today is the day of salvation. If you're visiting here this morning and you don't know Jesus, 
We would love to share with you more what it means to trust him so that whatever heartache you're feeling can be transformed internally and that you would be transformed by this good news of Jesus. We don't know whether we're living in month one or month 12 of this year of favor. But the day of wrath is indeed coming. The day of vengeance is indeed coming. And all those who are not trusting in Jesus will have to stand for their own actions. They will give an account for all they have said and done and thought. And in that day, I'm going to be cleaving to Jesus. I hope that can be said for all of us here this morning. Today is the day of salvation. Second, we're living in this already and not yet kingdom. This is why our world still feels broken and dark, and yet the light of Christ has entered into this world. And so if we're wondering, does Christmas time overpromise and underdeliver? Does it tell us too much and give us too little? The reality is no. It will actually exceed our highest expectations and our greatest hopes. God does not make promises too big for him to keep. Rather, the incarnation is the first fruits. It's the beginning of all that Jesus will do and accomplish. And we saw that in Acts. It's the Acts, yes, of the apostles, but it's the Acts of Jesus Christ. He was continuing to give of his spirit and of his power and of his word to transform lives from the inside out so that those who would read his scriptures would be transformed and have unspeakably good news dwelling from within them. That those who are spiritually blind could have sight. Those who are oppressed can find freedom in Jesus. Those who are imprisoned to sin can finally be set free. The sign is on. The lingering brokenness of our world isn't because God is powerless, but rather that more sinners can be saved by grace before time runs out. Third, third application is that we are to take heart and to have hope because there is coming a day where this good news of great joy that will be for all the people will really, indeed, exceed all of our expectations. Turn with me to Isaiah 65. I want us to see this. This was originally going to be my sermon text, but I changed it. But I want to, and we don't have time to kind of look at every single aspect of this, but I just want us to catch a flavor, a glimpse of how good and glorious it's going to be. That there is the inbreaking of light into the darkness, and yet it's going to be incredible. Isaiah 65 Verse 17, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. And it says this, and we'll read all the way from 17 to 25. We'll pause and make some comments. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. All the brokenness, all the grief, all the sadness, all the atrocities, all the horrific things that have been done to you or that you've done to others, they'll be forgotten. Verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. There will be joy and gladness. Why? 
I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. God will be glad in his people and there will be no more tears, no more weeping, no more distress. Verse 20, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. No more abortion, no more stillborns, no more miscarriages, no more pregnancies that don't come to term, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. No more will we have to have funerals for young people and say they died far beyond their time, far too early. That's such a tragedy. I can't believe that they're gone. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. What's it saying here? It's saying that we're going to enjoy all the sweetest things that we have in this life. I've never built my own house, but I imagine if I had built my own house by cutting down the trees, and after I've built that house, it's going to feel pretty good to live in that house, and, and it would be a tragedy. It would be bad if someone took my house, or the bank possessed it, or a foreign nation dispossessed us. And he's saying, Never will that be the case again. You go build houses and inhabit them. You're going to plant your spring gardens and you're going to eat of the tomatoes and the zucchini and the cucumbers. That feeling of satisfaction that you get picking the fruit that you planted, that's the satisfaction you're going to feel in these new heavens and new earth. Verse 23, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. Never again. Will you have children only to send them off to war, only to lose them too soon? For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. So, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The wolf grazes on the lamb right now, and yet they will be side by side grazing together. There's this picture of unspeakable, unimaginable, pervasive peace and joy, harmony. Oh, how we wish for a little harmony in our world, do we not? And yet there is coming a day when the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. The lion and the ox will not be enemies and the dust shall be the serpent's food. Satan will be disarmed once and for all forever. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the picture that is being painted for us in Isaiah, that we live in the already and not yet of this kingdom. That's why we're still feeling heartache and pain and tension, and stressors, but there is coming a day, and so we want to let that future reality, and the present age that we're living in, God's patience to transform our present hope. 
So we no longer say it's a wonderful time of the year only to be let down or, or, or that we want to have a holly jolly Christmas, but we realize we're working for the Scrooge. Instead, Christmas, Advent, is the season where we're celebrating that the greatest kingdom ruled by the greatest king is come in Jesus, in fulfillment of all of his promises that's going to exceed even our most wild imaginations and expectations. So let that future reality transform our present hope to give us an eternal perspective so that we'll trust him. So some of us right now this morning, we're feeling the effects of this broken world. We all do in some way, shape, or form. And yet, what I want us to do is to see that we're living in an age where God is kind and patient. He's not absent and unknowing, but he cares. So pray for the lost because this is the age of favor. Today is the day of salvation and let that future hope transform our present reality so that we will hope in God above all else. Let's pray. Father, that's our desire this morning that we would trust you and that our hope would be firmly rooted in Christ. So as we turn now to sing your praises, enliven our hearts to love you and help us to trust you and to even open our mouths so that others would hear the good news of great joy that will be for them as well. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.